So we're going to be continuing our journey through the book of Ephesians, and we're going to be covering Ephesians 3 this morning. So if you have your Bible, you can open up to chapter 3. It's a short letter, so if you open up to the front of Ephesians, you're probably not far from chapter 3, uh, but that's where we're going to be spending our time this morning. Here we go. So if you had a conversation with somebody a hundred years ago, if you could travel back in time and tell them about all the things that you experience in our day-to-day -day world today, a lot of the things that you would describe to them, they would probably consider to be very unlikely. Think about this. A hundred years ago, you go back and you tell somebody about how you, you use the microwave in your kitchen. What? That's so fast. How is that even possible? The, you might tell them about the internet, and they would have a hard time understanding that. The smartphones and the, the, the information that we have at our fingertips. You might tell them that people pay $5 for a cup of coffee nowadays, and they will pay extra for kale that is organic in the supermarket. They might hear this and go, hmm, unlikely. Or if you go back a couple more generations before that and tell them about automobiles, airplanes, electricity, and indoor plumbing, those folks also might say, that all sounds very unlikely to me. And then if you go the other direction, you might feel the same way yourself now about how some people are describing future innovations or technologies that we, we've dreamed about but we haven't experienced ourselves. I keep hearing nowadays about 5G technology and how it's going to get us closer and closer to things like a freeway where there's only cars that drive themselves. Can you imagine that? That's kind of, you might hear that and go, ah, no, that's unlikely. We're not going to see that in our lifetime. A friend of mine, uh, he came out here and we visited, and he, he's driving a Tesla. And I went, whoa, I've seen those, but I've never been in one. He said, like, do you want to drive it? And I said, yes, I absolutely want to drive your Tesla. <laughs> so I got to drive it, uh, and it's, he starts showing me all the different features. And there's a little, in the rearview mirror, there's an, a camera that's facing the inside of the car. And I said, what's that for? And he said, oh, well, when the technology catches up, and we're not that far away, but when the car becomes self-driving, what's going to happen is this Tesla that you're sitting in is going to drive me to work, drop me off, and then the rest of the day while I'm at work, it's going to taxi people around the city. Automatically, no driver, the car is going to drive itself, and he's going to earn money by being a ghost Taxi, I can't even imagine this. He was explaining this to me, and guess what I was thinking? Unlikely. Unlikely. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> the example that I keep hearing when it comes to 5G technology is that, that this is going to give us a, a step in the direction where a surgeon in New York City is going to be able to perform a surgery on a patient in Los Angeles using robotic technology. We have robots. We have surgeons. I don't think we yet have people who are willing to let a robot surgeon operate on them, but they're saying, no, 5G is going to get us there. And as I think about that, I go, that all seems very unlikely to me as well. Well, in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul references a previous generation that didn't know about God's plan to unite the Jews and the Gentiles, to create the unified church through Jesus Christ. But now, that mystery has been revealed, and... Even to a previous generation from Paul's time, if you go backwards from him, that would have seemed unlikely to them. But now he's speaking to his current generation, and even they find it a little bit hard to believe. It all seems very unlikely. And Paul refers to this in chapter 3 as the mystery. So I want you to listen for as Paul describes this mystery, what it is, what it's about, what God's intentions were for it as we read through the first part of Ephesians chapter 3. 
For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, will surely... You've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. Well, in reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that, through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all of the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, for, uh, which for ages was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, do not be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Paul references the mystery several times in this passage. Did you catch it? Did you hear him talking about the mystery? This isn't the first time that he's mentioned it or hinted at this mystery and what it is. It's in chapters 1 and 2, we have Paul erupting with praise. If you can, this is kind of a little review session. You remember Paul is erupting and saying, praise God, and Jesus is, is the new thing, and it's exciting, and this is what God is doing. And then he prays for the Ephesians that their eyes will be opened to see the work that God is doing, this saving and uniting work in Christ. And then he's reminding us that we were once far away from God, but now through Christ we've been brought near. Nod your head if this all sounds familiar, because this is where we've been. This is where, where we're, what brought us to this point right now. All along, there's been this appeal that Paul has been either directly mentioning or hinting at that has to do with unity and taking people who were outsiders and helping them become insiders. Uh, this appeal to in the inclusion of the Gentiles along with the Jews. And this is the mystery, not just salvation through Christ, but salvation that unites previously separated groups, this appeal toward unity in Christ. When Paul uses this term mystery, he's not talking about something that is just unknown or unknowable, things that we, we don't understand and will never really understand. Like people say, oh, the female mind is just a mystery. We're never going to figure that out. Uh, Darren's on board with that. That's not the kind of mystery that Paul's talking about here. <laughs> you guys will have a conversation later, I'm sure, about that. When Paul says mystery, he is talking about something that was hidden, that we didn't know about, but that doesn't mean it wasn't there. But now it's something that has been revealed. It's, it's the opposite of what we think of sometimes as a mystery. And he's mentioned this already. If we go back to chapter 1, we're reminded that he says, with all wisdom and understanding... He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when their times reach their fulfillment. What is this mystery, Paul? To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So if we remember that, he's not really unpacked it and developed it much, but he's excitedly talking about this and hinting at it. So what we see in this, these verses is that it's, it's not a new thing. This is something that existed before, but it was just previously unreleased. 
This week, I found out that uh, one of my favorite bands, Weezer, has a new album that's come. You guys know Weezer. I've mentioned them before. Uh, they've got a new album coming out in May. It's called Van Weezer, and uh, it's finished. The album is done. There's artwork. There are songs that have been recorded. But guess what? You can't listen to that album yet because they haven't released it. But that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And in the same way, this mystery that Paul is talking about, he's like, this is not a new thing that God just made up because his first plan failed. This is something that God was working toward. It was hidden from previous generations, but now it's been revealed to me and the apostles and the prophets. This is something that now we can know about and we can experience. And he also says this mystery is about bringing unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. That makes sense when we understand he's talking about the Gentiles and the Jews functioning together, becoming this church, this new entity, this, this family of God. This is me kind of going to where, where he's hinted and saying, we should have known this it was coming. But then he really spells it out for us. And maybe you caught this back in verse 6 of chapter 3. He says specifically, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Heirs together, members together, sharers together. How many times did he use the word together? Together, together, together. This, what's the name of our series as we're going through Ephesians? Together. We go together, right? So this is what he's talking about here. Uh, this is the mystery that the Gentiles are in. They are part of us. They are with us. Let's make room for them. And you know what? The people hearing this for the first time may have thought that all seems very, say it with me, unlikely. Unlikely. And we shouldn't be surprised about that because this is really a tall order when you think about it. We might think, oh no, the church is an inclusive place. Everybody's welcome. But how well do we share? How well do we like it when somebody changes the rules and says, this is something that you have, that you're comfortable with, that you have an understanding of? Oh, now you got to make room for people who are kind of weird. They're very different from you. you got to scoot over, and you have to be a co-heir. You have to be a co-member. You have to be a co-sharer. How well do people like hearing that now you're going to have to start sharing something that you didn't have to share before? How well do you do when that happens to you? You ever been sitting on an airplane and everybody's, they're making their way to their seats and uh, you've chosen your seat. There's not assigned seats because you're flying southwest and it's cheaper and that's just the way to go. You've got your nice window seat and you, you, there's no one in the middle seat. How many times do you go, man, I just can't wait for someone to come and squish right next to me and take up that middle seat. Oh, I can't wait to get my row, buddy. This is going to be a nice long flight. Hope it's somebody who showers twice a week. You don't say that. You don't do that. You probably spread out a little bit in your seat as people are going by, and you're like, that's right. Go get those seats by the restrooms back there. <laughs> you probably put your purse in the middle seat until you absolutely have to give it up, right? Nod your head and admit, confess. That's what you do on an airplane. That's what happens when it comes to sharing. Sharing changes things. We're going to be co-sharers with the Gentiles. Uh, I don't know. You're going to be co-heirs. How does it feel when you have learned that you have an inheritance, but now you understand that, oh, you have to share this? Okay. Maybe that's fair. Maybe that makes sense. But wouldn't you prefer to inherit something and get all of it for yourself? I heard a story about a man in North Carolina this summer. And the lottery that he played, he picked his own lottery number, and he won. And it was a $7.8 million lottery. 
They, just imagine when he found out, like, oh, that's my number. I won $7.8 million. But then he found out that 2,000 other people chose the same number, and they won the same lottery. And the number that he chose was 0000. And he won a lottery, but he had to share with 2,000 other people. Quick math tells us that's less than $4,000 a person. And that's not nothing. I mean, I'd still be excited about that. But the point here is that sharing means we might get less. And I think we all can agree, co-heirs, co-members, co-sharers, that's something that we're going to have to get used to. But Paul says, no, that, that's the plan. That's the plan for the church. And the people say, it's unlikely, Paul. It's not going to work. And that's maybe why in this same passage you get Paul using a lot of mitigating language. He's trying to explain himself. He's trying to soften the blow a little bit. He says, you guys, this mystery was made known to me, but it, not just me. I mean, I'm not making this stuff up. It's the apostles and the prophets. God revealed this. This comes from God and not just me. And he even goes out of his way to say, I don't even know why I was chosen to be a servant of delivering this news since I'm less than all of the Lord's people. You ever wonder why he says that? Why he's using this self-deprecating language and just like overly humble? He's saying, this, this is not a Paul thing. Like, this is a God thing. I, I shouldn't even be delivering this message. I am not worthy, but this is how God works. It's in these surprising new ways that we're all going to have to get used to. So after he makes these disclaimers, he gets down to verse 10, and I think this is the heart of the passage. He gets to something that's really, really important. But it's also, for me anyway, it's the most confusing part of this passage. Verse 10, I had to read several times. I didn't really understand it right away. This is where he says, God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. I don't quite understand what that means. Usually, when I'm reading the Bible and I hear something like, God's intent is this, or God's plan is this, that's when I get out my pen and I go, oh, good, this is, this is like a direct line into the intentions of God or the hope that God has for me. And I want to know, I want to do that, so I'm going to write this down. But when I read this verse, I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to be writing down. So let's unpack it a little bit. When Paul or Peter or Jesus or other Jewish thinkers of their day, um, when they talk about God, they acknowledge that there is this heavenly realm. There is this spiritual realm where things happen. And uh, they're, they're, they're in touch with this reality. And they talk about it a lot more than we talk about it nowadays. Um, the concept here is that there are un unseen forces at work in our world. And we might acknowledge that if, if, we, if we think about it and go like, oh yeah, well we believe that God is unseeable, but he's still working. We believe in things like the power of prayer, the movement of the Holy Spirit, uh, angels and, and God's messengers and, and workers who are doing things that we don't see, but we experience the results of. We, we can go like, oh yeah, 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 we, we, we acknowledge these spiritual forces. But sometimes that's where we stop, is the, the forces of God at work in the heavenly realms. And we won't go to the next step and talk about the forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We don't like to talk about those things. We're not comfortable with that concept. And there's a lot of reasons for this. But Paul has no problem talking about this. He's very open about his beliefs in how the spiritual world works and how it relates to the physical world. And in Ephesians, there's several examples of this. Back in chapter 2, you remember he talks about the before and after picture. Before Christ, this is where you were, and after you've been brought into the light and you've been made alive in Christ. 
He says, uh, before we were saved, we followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That's, that's spiritual realms language right there. In chapter 4, he says, we are not to let our anger give the devil a foothold. And at the end of Ephesians, we get this section about putting on the armor of God. Why? So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Our struggle, he says, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He's like, this, this, this is a reality. This is something I'm going to acknowledge and talk about why we have this need for Christ. The things that happen in the spiritual realm affect what happens in our physical day-to-day world. So Paul's in- or God's intent, according to Paul, is that the church will live out the wisdom of God's plan of unity, and it will somehow put the enemies of God in their place. The good works that happen in the church, if we are truly being the church, don't just benefit us, but they also disprove the forces of evil that are trying to thwart the will of God. And we don't think about that very often. But this is what Paul is saying. God's intent is he's going to show the world what his church can really do, but he's also going to show the forces of evil what the church can really do. I think that this is really important, because if we believe in the forces of evil at work, then we want to do everything we can to resist them. The forces of evil in our world are preaching a message that is counter to the message of Christ. They're preaching a message of self-interest, of mistrust, of fear, of hate. But Paul says the church is God's plan to disprove the worldview of the powers of evil. It's kind of like this. In 1936, Germany hosted the Olympic Games. Hitler was in power at the time, and he was very vocal about his beliefs in the supremacy of the white Aryan race. This was the first ever televised Olympic Games, and so the Nazis were really excited to show the world that their philosophy is true. But, if you know where this is going, enter Jesse Owens on the scene. He shows up, and he makes very short work of this ill-conceived plan. Jesse Owens won gold medals in the 100-meter race, in the 200-meter, in the 4x100, and the long jump. He went to Hitler's own turf, and he said, nope, it doesn't work. See, it's not true. Right in front of everybody. And that's what the church is supposed to do to the forces of evil at work in the world. It's supposed to be a public demonstration that God's plan, this mystery that Paul writes so much about, as unlikely as it seems, actually works. That it actually is a good plan. It seems so unlikely. No, 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 no. It works. And you can see it work. This is why the church grew so much, as much as it did when it was new. Back, if you think back to Jesus' time and the generation after Jesus, Paul's teachings, the churches that he founded, uh, why did the church grow? It shouldn't have. It was suspect. There were so many things working against the church, and yet it grew and grew and grew. I think it grew because it worked. It grew because God's unlikely plan of unlike people still loving each other and serving each other and devoting their lives to each other was actually happening. It was actually going on. Look at these statistics. In the year AD 40, there was about 1,000 Christians in the world, which made up 0.0017% of the Roman world. You fast forward to 350 AD, now there's 34 million 
Christians in the world. Over half of the Roman Empire was Christians. That's unlikely. That's surprising. And you might sit there and you think, well, Constantine, right? Roman Emperor Constantine became a Christian in, uh, was it 325 or something like that? So he made Christianity the official state religion, so it probably did most of its growing in the last 50 years or so, right? No, it didn't. Christianity grew 40% every decade for 300 years. While Christians were being burnt alive, while Christians were being hunted down, while the church was underground, while the church was suspect, while there was not a lot of advantages to being a Christian, why were people risking their lives and their safety for the church? Because it worked. Because it was God's plan, and it was proving that this is a good thing. This unity, this, this surrounding ourselves around Christ as the center, that this, this actually is true, and it actually works. We are the hands and feet, the functioning body of the risen Jesus. When the church does its job, you cannot deny it God's power at work. The world has to take notice. And the spiritual forces competing with God are going to take notice as well. And unlikely things start to happen. And you've seen this happen. And I've seen this happen. Justin was up here two, three weeks ago, and he was preaching from Ephesians 2 about coming out of the dark and being in the light of Christ. We were driving together this week, and Justin said, it's even, it blows my mind still, he says, that I'm up in front of a church of Christians, and I'm preaching the gospel of Christ from Ephesians chapter 2. Justin's 20th high school reunion is coming up this fall. He might go, he might not. He's still on the fence. But when he goes back, and there's people say, well, what, what have you been up to? What are you doing? They, he'll say, I'm preaching the gospel. I'm up in front of a church in Livermore, sharing the truth of Jesus Christ. But there's a lot of people that he grew up with that'll say, wow, that's, that sounds unlikely. <laughs> no offense. I was talking with Chris Bevington about his past, his history with hate and with racism. But then Chris Bevington said yes to Jesus. I want to be a follower of Jesus, and he doesn't subscribe to that worldview anymore. He told me as a new Christian, he was sitting right here, and at the communion table was a black man. I'm 99% sure it was Ryan Gibson <laughs> up here sharing the communion thought. And Chris said, it was cool just hearing him invite me to the table and talk about life in Christ. And he's like, just knowing where I've been, that's, that's a very unlikely thing. Both of these guys have leaned into that mystery, God's will for G Gentiles and Jews, for outsiders and insiders to become one family, and for the unity of the church to glorify God. We've seen it. But we don't always see it. We have stories, and we get glimpses of it. But maybe we're not as fully bought into it as Paul was, or as we should be. Think about this. People still wanted to be part of the early church, even though it was illegal. There were people risking their safety and their well-being for this whole we-go-together thing. And Paul's writing this letter from prison. Remember back in verse 13, he's like, don't worry about me. My sufferings, you've heard about me, and yeah, I'm having some hardships, but you know what? It's all worth it 
He says, it's for your glory. He says, if God's church can be the church, if God's church can thrive, then I don't care what happens to me. I could be in prison. I can get beaten. I'm going to continue doing this. He was willing to give his life for it. And we need to think about that and ask ourselves today, is Tri-Valley the kind of church that people would want to be a part of if it was illegal? If it was risky? If it cost us more than it costs us now, would we still make the effort? Would we still be the church? I think if we're living into this mystery that Paul is talking about, then the answer is yes. Just like in the early church, people will fly under the radar. They will break the law. They will put themselves at risk in order to be this church that God has dreamed for it to be. If we're not leaning into that mystery, the people will pass. And they'll come up with better things to do with their time. The problem with people hearing things about the 5G future and it seeming far-fetched and them uh, hearing about these innovations and then responding with a sneering, eh, it's unlikely. The problem with that is that it's based on things that we've experienced and things that we currently understand about how the world works. It's, 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 an, it's a measured response. It's not just like, ah, I don't want to believe in anything that I haven't seen. It's just like, ah, we haven't seen it. We haven't experienced it. So I find it to be unlikely. Part of that is because our visionary imaginations are limited. And so that's where Paul comes in. This last section in Ephesians chapter 3 is Paul's prayer for Christians to have a capacity to understand that nothing is impossible with God, that God can do it. As a church, without God, we can try it. But with God, he's going to glorify himself. He's going to prove that this plan is a good plan, and it actually works. Listen to what Paul says. This is a good prayer for us. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or that we can imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul says, I know it seems very unlikely, so my prayer for you is that you are empowered to see what can't be seen and still believe in the God who can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Paul was in a position to see something he believed really could work because it was God's plan, God's will. It was God's mystery. And we find ourselves in a similar situation, casting a vision for something that a lot of people believe to be very unlikely. But we need to keep at it. We need to keep preaching it. We need to keep living it, keep advocating the value and the need for Christ's church in the world. One way that we want to help you do this uh, is through, I'll tell you about it in a second. When we get to the end of chapter 3, we kind of reach a turning point 
in the book of Ephesians. Up until this point, it's just, this is the gospel, this is what it is, this is the what. You need to understand this before you can take one step forward. Ephesians chapters 1, 2, 3 are the what. Ephesians chapter 4, 5, and 6 are the now what. Great. We're on board. We want to be part of the church. We want to follow Christ. We hear God's will, his intent. We want to follow it. What do we do next? This is where Paul starts to give some practical instructions. We're going to dip into those in the coming weeks. But I want to say this to point out the fact that the Bible, as God's word, as God's message for us, as God's instructions, as God's marching orders for us, even, are not supposed to just be interesting things for us to consider and then walk away from. They're supposed to be life-transforming. They're supposed to impact us. We're supposed to be changed, and we're supposed to respond in some kind of way. And I confess that sometimes I get up here and I preach interesting things and I tell stories about Weezer and it makes me feel good and you guys smile at me while I do it. But then I, I, I leave and go like, well, what, well, what are we supposed to do? Do we give any marching orders? Do we challenge any of our worldviews that, that clash with those of God? We need to be doing this intentionally as a church. And it's not that we're not doing this. There's pockets where this is happening, and, and there's ways that the church can do this. But I want to be more intentional in this Sunday morning sermon time about doing this. And the way that I came up with is to give you guys uh, some uh, discipleship questions. After every sermon, I've decided that I'm going to write a list of questions. There's supposed to be questions you can ask, preferably not by yourself, but ask with somebody else from this church or from your household. You can do this uh, at your family meal table. You can do this over your morning coffee. You can be intentional and get together with other brothers and sisters from this congregation. The discipleship groups is one way that we are trying to facilitate this. And by the way, if you haven't signed up for one of our discipleship home groups, there's two meetings Sunday nights. There's one meeting on Wednesday, and signups are in the foyer. But I've said, I'm going to do this. I want you guys to take the sermon with you. And the way that you can access these questions is up here. You go to trivalleychurch.org. That's our website. For as long as I've been here, and you go to our homepage, there's a button called Discipleship Questions. Do you see it? Boom. Discipleship Questions. Each week, some prompts. You don't, don't worry about reading these. They're real small. You can go to the website later, and you can do these. But we want you guys to interact with these questions, because these aren't just going to say, like, well, what did Paul say in verse 5? Well, he said this. Well, good job. You get an A because you got the question right. This is, if this is what God is speaking to us, how are we responding to this? How are we getting up and going? That's what the purpose of these questions is. So I wanted to introduce this. I'm going to be referencing these in the coming weeks, but my commitment is to make sure that uh, after every sermon, uh, there's something that you can interact with throughout the week so that you take these scriptures with you, so that you really live it out, so that we can be the church, not just the Sunday church, but the church church, the mystery that Paul is describing and that God wants us to be. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll have the praise team come back up here and lead us through some songs. God, I thank you for this word today. I pray that it uh, takes root in our hearts, that we don't leave it behind sitting on the chair uh, as we leave like we do to our newsletters. But God, we want to take this word into our hearts and we want to live it out. We want to use it as a mirror to examine our lives and say, what would you have us do, Lord? And so we pray along with Paul this morning. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us your vision and then give us courage to follow it and to live it out. I pray for this congregation that if we are honoring you in any way, that we'll continue to do that. There's ways that we need to mobilize and become more active in our growth 
in our relationship with you, in our unity with one another, in our relationships. I pray that you'll reveal those to us and that we can act on those things. I pray that your will is done. I pray that more people who don't know Jesus will come to know him, love him, trust him, and follow him. Uh, and we pray all this in his name. Amen.